Hi everybody, this is Jeannie Faulkner, and you're listening to Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting, the podcast, where we're having feminist global conversations about pregnancy, parenting, and the whole damn thing. And that whole damn thing includes so many topics, including healthcare, education, politics, gender norms, gender equity, culture, attitude, and a whole lot of really passionate opinions. This week, the passionate opinions are more polarizing than ever, and emotions are running really high, including for me, for myself. I won't lie, I am devastated that Hillary Clinton wasn't elected our president. I'm grieving the lost opportunities for the work that she could have done, the potential destruction of so many good programs that have benefited women and parents, and I'm frightened about what's ahead. I was really deflated yesterday on day one after the election, and today, while I'm still stressed and confused and grieving, I'm digging back in to do the work we have to do. And now, there's more work to do than ever. There are new minds to expand, a greater need to wear, to raise awareness and understanding of the intricate links that are made between government and healthcare and parenting and all of it. You know, like I said, the whole damn thing. Most of all, I'm really frustrated that the contributions and opinions and expertise of women, especially one woman, aren't being included in the arc of social progress we need to affect. There is just so much work to do. There's always been a lot of work to do, but now I think it's going to be harder. Our culture is changing drastically, and women, minorities, and people of color are getting the short end of the stick again, or still. This isn't a new problem. Apparently, the intersection of culture and biology, birth and death goes back to the beginning. And today's guest is an archaeologist and an anthropologist, and we're going to talk about how her work and research um, exposes gender-based oppression, inequality, and the structural violence against reproductive aged women that is inherent in modern medical views of childbirth and has been prevalent since the middle of the 20th century. But before we get Dr. Pam Stone on the line, I want to implore each and every one of you, whether your candidate won or not, to dig deep and figure out how you can get more involved in making our government work the way you want it to. I'm going to ask you to be intentionally kind to everyone, and I want you to stand up for anyone you see who's being bullied or made a victim as part of the election fallout. I know that the vast majority of people who voted for, um, you know, our our new president, President Trump, um, are good people who had the best of intentions in mind. I know that there are some people who there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of hatred, there's a lot of privilege out there that certain subsets of our society feel entitled to victimize and bully other people. I know that's not you. I know that's not even most people, but they're making a lot of noise and they're scaring a lot of people. And I'm going to ask you to go out of your way 
to be their champion. Seriously, it's up to us to make this country the global leader it's meant to be, and there are more reasons than ever to change it for the better. And I'm going to quote Hillary Clinton in her concession speech. The American dream is big enough for everyone, for people of all races and religions, for men and women, for immigrants, for LGBT people, and people with disabilities, for everyone. So now our responsibility as citizens is to keep doing our part to build that better, stronger, fairer America we seek. And I know you will. I know you will too. Let's get today's guest on the line. Hello. Hi, Pam. It's Jeannie. How are you? Hey, Jeannie. I'm, I'm okay. You're, you're okay? It's, yeah. Yeah. Um, to my listeners out there, we're recording this conversation the morning after the election, and um, I, for one, am feeling pretty rough. My listeners know that I have a strong Hillary supporter. And uh yeah, this is this is a toughie. How are you? Um pretty despondent, I think. I think um it's it, it's kind of a blow and I had class this morning and my students were pretty um pretty much in shock and it's yeah, it's hard. It's really hard. Yeah. Well, Pam, let me read your bio, and then let's start talking, and I kind of anticipate that the election will come up probably throughout our conversation. So Mm -hmm. today, we're we're talking to Pam Stone. Pam has a bachelor's from Hampshire College, did her senior thesis on ethics and archaeology. She has a master's and a PhD in anthropology and studied paleoobstetrics, reproduction, workload, and mortality for ancestral Pueblo women from the University of Massachusetts. She's currently the director of the Culture, Brain, and Development Program and on the faculty in the School of Critical Social Inquiry at Hampshire College. She's also currently on the executive board of the American Anthropological Association. Oh, Pam, I love this. I love this bio. And there are a lot of terms in there that I don't fully understand. So let me ask you, who are you and what do you do? And I hope you're going to enlighten me. Well, okay. So I am an anthropologist. um, And to begin, anthropology is a discipline that has multiple fields, but most people have... um, think about it as someone who looks at culture and pyramids and looking and digging up things. Mm -hmm. And that's part of what I do. So that's the archaeology part Mm -hmm. um, and also the cultural anthropology part. And then I also um, do a lot of work looking at the human body, particularly through human remains and skeletons. And combined, I sort of explore how people lived in the past and I use that to think about what we know about the present and maybe something about where we might go into the future. Um, I'm also a mom, mm-hmm. and I have two boys who are 15 and 12, and um, they actually define a lot of what I do. Interestingly, I hadn't planned that, but it sort of worked out in that mode. Um, there is a fourth field of anthropology that I would like to mention, although I don't work as much in it, but I think we can all understand something about it, which is linguistics, in which we 
look at how language is used. And so it does come up in places, but I'm definitely not an expert in that subdiscipline. Yeah. Um, But yeah, so most of my work is really thinking about people and thinking about how we interact with people and how people interact with their cultural norms, things that they know about every day, but maybe some things that they don't. And then also how I'm super interested in how um, our health and our bodies and our biology are navigated through thinking about what we know about them, but also what's expected of us when we're, um, you know, living our lives and how those things get interrelated, how sometimes we feel ill and sometimes we feel well, um, and sometimes that's mitigated by what's going on outside of our bodies, but also sometimes our bodies are responding to real feelings and real things, um, you know, that are having real physiological responses and how that works. And particularly, and probably most interesting to what we're talking about, is around the idea of pregnancy at birth. And um, I'm super interested in how we think about female bodies and female agency um, and how, um, you know, birthing people become parents and how that also impacts the ways in which we navigate the world around us. So when I was reading your bio, um, it mentioned that your research focuses on the intersection of science and culture, particularly exploring life and death to understand how, how biology is negotiated by culture at birth and how life histories are explored through biology in death. And I am so fascinated by that sentence. Can you explain that a little bit more to me? Um, sure. So again, um, a lot of my work has focused on looking at human skeletal remains in the past, which may sound a little um, creepy, but it, it really isn't. It's actually quite interesting because there's a lot of things that um, our skeletons can tell us about how we lived and how we, whether we were well or whether we weren't. There's a lot of things our skeletons can't tell us as well. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm really interested in is really thinking about um, what we can learn about female bodies in particular in the past um, and thinking about how um, those things are navigated by the way we culturally think about pregnancy and birth today. So thinking about, I mean, I, I guess really where I, where I started out was in archaeology, there's always this idea that, you know, you look at, the demographics, which means you look at how many people you have and how old they were when they died, because that's all you have to look at. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you say, oh, well, if there were women that died during their, what we call the peak reproductive years, so somewhere between 18 and 30, they must have died because they were pregnant. And, and then you stop, and that's it. That's all you ever hear about women in the past is that they get kind of turned off because they died when they were pregnant. And I wanted to say, well, how's that possible? Like, how do we know that? What can we, how can we talk about that? And that's where I got this idea of paleoobstetrics. So looking at giving birth and being pregnant in the past, what can we read from the skeleton that can tell us something about that? And what I learned is that it's really complicated. And, um, more so because there's no way to know how many times someone was pregnant or how many babies they had from looking at the skeleton. Mm-hmm. And 
what I also learned is that the only way that we could maybe look at this was to look at the pelvis, um, because that's a really critical place for giving birth. Mm-hmm. Um, we've all heard stories about, oh, if you have big hips, you must have great birthing ability. But right. we've also shown that that's actually an old wife tale, and your hip size has nothing to do with your actual birth canal size. Right. Kind of an interesting fact. Yeah. Um, but so... So I was really interested in saying, well, how come all these people, and and when I say people, you know, my field has been predominantly men, um, and medicine as well has played a role in this. How can they all be saying that women died in the past because they were pregnant and clearly and stopped there? Is um, it because like the, really interested? Is it yeah? Go on. Is it because it's a predictable and acceptable loss? Um, I think it's because it's an easy answer. <laughs> Got it. And and in part because we do have high maternal mortality rates in the global world today. Mm-hmm. And so and we also predicated this this idea we've created around how medicine was looking at pregnancy and birth and sort of moving it out of an arena that was female centered and into a hospital centered space. That is so, male centered. Yeah. Yeah. So so again, there's, there's, so this is, that's all culture, right? It's the culture of where we give birth. It's the culture of how we're looking at the body. And I started to say, well, what, what else is, what else is there? Can we, can we move beyond culture and see if there's real biology? Because we're always told it's a health risk, where it's a risky situation to give birth. Mm-hmm. Um, it's dangerous. It's, it's scary. We, we really need to manage it with medicine. And I said, well, and mind you, I started all my work before I ever had a baby. Uh-huh. So I definitely was, you know, learning this at the same time of thinking, wow, it's scary. It's dangerous. Ouch, it's going to hurt. Ouch, I, I don't know if I can do this. I mean, I'm very, I'm very short. I'm barely 5'2", you know, so there's some idea that, oh, my gosh, maybe my skeleton's too small. Um, and so on. And so I became really interested in, could we actually measure this? Mm-hmm. And um, what I discovered is that there are ways to measure it. And, and you know, yeah. there are ways to measure pelvis shape, you know, the, the outlet when yeah. somebody's lying on the table being checked. Um, and so I use those measurements, the measurements that the obstetricians use, that midwives use, and I put them on um, skeletons on their pelvises. And what I found was that female pelvises from a thousand years ago have the same general dimensions as pelvises that we live in today, that you and I are walking around with today, that there was very little that made them compromised or flattened unless someone had been in a terrible accident and broken a pelvis mm-hmm. or had some really terrible you know, condition that they were born with. It's very rare to see a pelvis that couldn't birth a baby if it's a female pelvis. Right, right. And and that made me think, well, then what's going on? Like, and also think about all the people that we have here today in the world. I kept thinking, how how could how could it be so risky? How could evolution have made it so impossible? And what and, did you um, find so out? That's where I started thinking about, well, what is it that sets the culture of this this picture together? And if we, I always tell my students, think about ourselves three hundred years ago. 
pretty sure that every single one of us would have seen a birth, been at a birth. It may have been an animal birth, may have been a human birth. The birth might have happened in our living room or in our kitchen. But everybody, you know, pretty much from the time you're a child, it's just part of everyday life. And now fast forward, how many of us have seen a birth? Right, right. So many women that I meet, especially young pregnant women, um, it, it their own delivery will be the fir- their first birth experience. And of course, they're confused and they're afraid and they've, you know, heard all of the negative stories that people like to share and so many opinions. And yeah, it's it's a bad place to start. Totally. And, and it was the same thing for me. Honestly, throughout all of my research, I had never seen a birth or mm-hmm. been at a birth. Mm-hmm. And and in fact, the, my PhD committee kept joking that for my final meeting, I should give birth. <laughs> <laughs> I gave. Um, I, I, I kind of did the that. Year after my final meeting, that I gave. Birth. <laughs> I had my second baby three days after I graduated from nursing school, and I often feel yeah. like that was my my thesis project. <laughs> well, but actually, a great thesis project because I will tell you, when I gave birth to my first child, it did not it did not go the way. I thought it was supposed to go. I mean, and I, I, even though I knew all this stuff, even mm-hmm. though I had read about it, I had been studying it, I knew that, you know, I, I guess the one thing that I took with me to my first birth was, I know my body can do this. But I questioned my body every step of the way, too. Like, when I thought I needed to push, and I was like, my labor's been, I, I had a very short labor, I full disclosure, uh-huh. <laughs> but... It was very, very short, and I could not believe that my body wanted to push when it did. Mm-hmm. And and I, I was like, there's no way. It's only been 45 minutes, and my midwife was like, oh, no, you can push now. Yeah. And that blew me away, you wow. know. So, I again, I kept my mantra was this is a very short period of time. It, it did hurt, um, but I also kept thinking, wow, I can do this. This is amazing. You know, and I think that that really got me through. And I don't know, had I not done the work I was doing, um, as I would have really trusted my body. And I think that that's the bottom line about much of my own work is to sort of bring around this idea that our bodies can do this. And that whether we do it at home or we have babies in the hospital with support, there's always support. But that um, that our bodies are really made to do it, and they've been made to do it for a very long time. And there are lots of physiological things in place to help us with it. it and there are lots of things that we do that help us with giving birth. So one of the things I discovered, too, which I'm sure you're very familiar with, is that if you're lying on your back to give birth, it often compromises your pelvic mm-hmm. shape because it doesn't allow for the flexibility of your joint. Right. You know, and I want, so medicine, medicine has scripted that very well. I want to go back a little bit to, um, yeah. you know, you're talking about you went into your labor with a lot of confidence that your body could do the job it needed to do. And um, a lot of women who are athletes, you know, specifically athletes, um, come to labor with this, you know, this long stretch of their life where their body has really been able to do stuff. They know that if they work it and train it and treat it right, it's going to do, it's going to perform for them. And then they get into an obstetric situation and 
they may come to their pregnancy with physical confidence. But right from the get-go, that confidence is pinged at. And doubts are, I call them seeds of doubt, you know, that get planted pretty early in prenatal care for a lot of women. And even the entire structure of the way that we do prenatal care, which is, you know, looking very intently for problems, um, that dings people's confidence. And, you know, it's it's kind of, it's kind of a, a fragile system from the from the outset. Um, yes. Yeah. So you wrote an article that was published earlier this year that focus, fo- exposes gender-based oppression, equality, and what you call structural, excuse me, structural violence against reproductive aged women that are inherent in modern medical views of childbirth since the middle of the 20th century. Let's talk about that. Why don't you tell me a little bit about that article? So, so that article, so the things I was just talking about, um, the, the article developed out of these ideas. Mm-hmm. And in part, um, this very um, deeply rooted idea that um, evolution has created what is known as the obstetrical dilemma, which is this idea that um, women now are going to have a really hard time giving birth and that's how we evolved we evolved to having a problem giving birth and that um and i think that that's going back to your question about that moment when you you you're somebody who knows your body can do all these things and then you get into this obstetric situation and people are like oh i don't know there's gonna be a problem it's risky it's hard you know your body isn't really going to be able to do this, and you really get deflated. You have these um, risk that's factors. What I'm talking about. Yeah, you're older, you're heavier, you've got these risk factors. Yeah, your body's probably not going to work the way it oughta. We should intervene. Right. Exactly. And I think I mean, and and again, I'm not saying that there aren't absolute reasons why there need to be some forms of intervention. Oh, absolutely. Support for some women. And thank God um, that those interventions exist. That's not what we're exactly. talking about. We're talking exactly. about the prevailing um, climate of care is what we're talking about, where it's heavy on the interventions, even for women who aren't having medical problems. Right. And and so what what I've learned is that, exa- I mean, it's exactly what you say. We walk in and we're already at risk because yeah. we're giving birth. Now, birth is the most universal thing it's the most universal experience ever for humans across the world ever ever everybody has been born everyone (laughs) everybody's got a mama whether they know them or not exactly and the reality is is that the physiology of birth conception to giving birth is is the same yeah it's just that how what we eat where we live our socioeconomic status are, you know, there are so many other things that contribute to that experience that that's what changes it. Mm-hmm. And walking into a situation where someone says, you're at risk, and someone with authority says you're at risk, and we all give doctors full authority, that's hard. And it's hard to say, oh, no, I'm not, mm-hmm. when you're being told you are. And yeah. that's, sort of, that's the culture part that we're living in and that's the part that I'm really interested in and and for a lot of women 
it might be easy enough to say, oh, no, I'm not, but it's not just them. It's their baby. And so it's really hard for mothers to acquiesce power in order to advocate for their baby, especially when they're in a position of not really being the expert, you know? So people will say, um, oh, but you want a healthy baby, so we got to do this, 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 and this. That's a tough one. Absolutely. Absolutely a tough one. And, you know, my first, and again, and we start out immediately in that system where, you know, it's about you, it's about your baby, it's about your baby, you know, and then we, then all the imaging and everything also brings that home as well. Um, I will tell you, my first baby was very overcooked. Mm -hmm. He was definitely very late. He Mm -hmm. was very big for my size. I think he was they were both really close in size. He was 8, 14, and probably, by my calculations, four weeks overdue. Wow. And, you know, it was about the baby at the end. Mm-hmm. And I, I had a hospital birth, but I did it with a midwife, and I was very clear that I didn't really want intervention. Mm-hmm. Um, I had one induction procedure, which worked the next morning and then had nothing else. But, you know there was a point during my labor where the doctor came in and said, hmm, if you don't give birth to that baby, we're going to have to take you in for an emergency C-section. And I, I mean, he luckily had a midwife that was very much advocating for what I wanted to, um, but he came out within that last half hour before they were going to wheel me in, and I was relieved um, because I was more scared of actually what could happen in some of those interventions for the baby than I was for me. Yeah. Which is interesting because I think I twisted it. Like, I think most people have the flip, but because of the work I've done, I think that one of the flaws in our system is that we're really not sure about the long-term implications of some of these interventions for our children. Right. And I think the hospitals make it seem like it's okay all the time. Right, right. And it's not. It's a massive surgical intervention in many, many cases. Um, you know, and that's just the sort of the, the tail end of the trail of interventions. And uh, yeah, yeah. And and we do, you know, I come from a background where I was a labor nurse for 20 years. And so if all you do is labor, delivery, recovery, surgery, postpartum, nursery, rinse, repeat, well, then of course it all looks normal to you. But this isn't normal to a woman who's having her, you know, first, second, third, fourth, fifth baby. This is a different experience for her. Yeah, it's it's complicated, isn't it? Yeah, and and the other thing is, is that, you know, one of the things I've been working on a lot now is thinking about what are those physiological things that have evolved to make us want to have another baby after that first one. Mm -hmm. And, um, And, you know, there's a lot of things that happen. When, you, when the baby comes out, that's great for the baby, but it's also great for the mom. And, you know, those rushes of hormones and things like that get um, hindered when you have a, certain interventions, mm-hmm. and therefore the mom's not also getting the full physiological experience as well. And I, I think that these are, you know, everything that our bodies do um, has been trial-tested over centuries, Mm -hmm. and I can even say over thousands of years, our particular species has been around for at least 
well, more than 100,000 years. So you got to figure that we, we physiologically figured out how to make the next generation happen and do it well. We just haven't <laughs> culturally figured out how to do it in this day and age. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. so I think that, you know, these are things that we should be thinking about in terms of also as we move towards thinking about healthier lifestyles um, and things of that nature. But also giving, giving women control of their bodies, giving them agency over the birth, it doesn't mean leaving them alone and saying we, you don't need any support ever. But yeah. what it means is saying your body can do this. It's the most natural thing. It's why we have uteruses. Uh-huh. This, you should be able to do it. And if you need help, we're here to help you. But right. not, here's all the help you need because we're not sure you can do it. Exactly. And I think that that's what you were getting at before, exactly. too. And I think that that's a, there's a huge difference in that. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's the very difference. So I wanted to talk more about, you know, I know a lot of your work revolves around women's agency. And... You know, we're coming off of an election where so much of what the country talked about was women's agency, except we didn't call it that. Um, You know, we called it, we talked about other issues of disrespect against women. And I don't know, I just want to hear your comments on it. I'm feeling, you know, as as a lifetime feminist who's in her 50s, I had my hopes super, super high that we were on the brink of great and massive change for not only women in society, but society at large. And, you know, it's a little rough. And I'd love to know your experience about that. Uh, Well, I think I'm a little raw myself at the moment. Um, As I said, I had class this morning and a lot of my students not all my students came to class, but a lot of them did, and we shared um, this exact conversation. Mm-hmm. Like, what does it mean, and, and why are people feeling um, deflated? Um, and, you know, I think there it, it's scary because I, I do think that there's a way in which this is setting us back a bunch mm-hmm. around women's agency, both as... Um, active participants of community and social change, as well as having agency over one's own body. And I think that, um, I I guess, I'm not even sure how to think, to be honest. I mean, I'm worried that we're going to lose healthcare options for women because um, there's going to be a shift in access. And I mean, I guess, again, like I said, I think I'm, I'm a bit overwhelmed um, and I, I am too. I, I got an email this morning from uh, a young woman I know who said, well, thank God I've got a Planned Parenthood appointment this week. It'll probably be the last one I'll ever get. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, I know I, I don't want to get into the subject of abortion, but the subject of birth has a lot of the same pieces in terms of having access to good care, having access to birth choices. Um, We don't often think of birth in this context, but I think we should. And I think that, and partly because birth 
is less political in many ways than mm-hmm. abortion, mm-hmm. but it, they're all woven together. Exactly. And, you know, even the contraceptive care is part of women's choices over their bodies and mm-hmm. their ability to have agency both as healthy individuals, but also as people within communities that are making choices as to what they want to do. And that, I, I think the email certainly highlights the, the very concern of losing yeah. that access. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm also very concerned about, you know, what it will do for women's health care in general. You know, I am um, somebody who is extremely grateful for the Affordable Care Act because I have, um, you know, serious pre-existing complications that meant that insurance was um, virtually unaffordable for me. And because I have, am the mother of adult children who, you know, kids these days don't, most kids don't go into full-time jobs where they get health insurance. It's a different economic reality now. And I'm just so grateful that my kids have, you know, we can keep them insured until they're 26 if necessary. Um, I'm, I'm grateful that my kids that are, have aged out of our insurance policy are able to get something for themselves that they can afford. And I'm really afraid. I'm afraid that's going to go away. And I know that Uh, we're going to have to, you know, this is the day after and we're all stunned. But these are the issues that affect women's quality of life and maternal health, reproductive health. It's all integrated, isn't it? Yes, it is. And and then I think about also um, neonatal health and early childhood health, you know, these, I think these are an access to that care as well. Um, You know, one of the things they say is, you know, a sick mother means really, you know, potentially devastating effects for her family Mm -hmm. if she can't be participating in that. Mm -hmm. Um, Globally, we know that's a huge problem. And, you know, we're sort of developing that problem in this country even more than it was. Um, Mm -hmm. If this you know, with the turnarounds that are probably going to happen. Yeah. Uh, moment of silence. There we go. <laughs> I know. <laughs> All right. Let's shift gears because that's really bringing me down. Yeah, um, totally. You know how people say, you know, after they've had a baby or they've gone through some major life event, they say, nobody ever told me that fill in the blank, blanks or nobody ever said that fill in the blank. And especially when it comes to labor, birth, or parenting. And I I always wonder if these are things that people really don't want to talk about or things that new mothers just really can't absorb or hear or if they're too difficult to fully articulate. But, you know, I wanted to ask you, what's one thing you've learned about birth or parenting that nobody ever told you about? (laughs) Oh, that's a good question. Like a hundred things today? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I guess that could go in multiple directions. I think one is how, um, you know, your kid is so different than, I I mean, I love kids, Mm -hmm. but when you have your own kid, it just transforms the way you sort of view everything. Everything. And, um, you know, you don't always like your kid because sometimes, you know, they're awful sometimes, aren't they? Or clean up something you didn't want to clean up but 
but in the end, I mean, I've learned so much from my kids, mm-hmm. and they have just been, yes, I know sometimes I call them my mini-studies, too, because I am in the anthropology business, sure. but, but honestly, it, it's just, it's a blessing, and I think even in light of the things that are going around right now, you know, I work really hard to remember how wonderful it is to have children. Um, For me, I mean, there are definitely people that this is not the thing for them. I will say the one thing from giving birth that I, that if I were to fill in that blank was that you, and I hope I can say this on the podcast, is that you have an incredibly long period. And I mean, menstrual cycle like Uh period after you give birth. And I don't think anyone ever really told me that. Right. It goes on forever. (laughs) (laughs) Like four to six weeks. Exactly. Yeah. And and that also, the other piece of that is, um, which makes a lot of sense, but no one ever really put it in context, is that if you do too much during a day, you will bleed more. And that's mm-hmm. because your uterus is trying to heal. And if you overexert yourself, you don't allow it to heal and it bleeds more. And mm-hmm. I wish somebody had really... Luckily, like I think in these terms often, but no one really explained that to me. Mm -hmm. And I think, again, this goes to this idea that women do need some recovery time after giving birth. And it doesn't mean that they can't do anything, but the body needs to heal, whether it's a vaginal birth or a C-section. And that I think we need to remember that it's not a disability it is just part of the process and I think that that's something that that I've learned that we you know the idea that the um I don't remember her name but she was the CEO of Google got right back into her you know CEO chair two weeks after giving birth seems crazy because physiologically it would have been good for her to take a little more time and I think that we often shame women about needing that time and that's not that would be another thing that I think is super important to understand that it is about being a healthy body and mm-hmm. not doing anything wrong. Right. We often like to put a time frame around what is and is not, you know, a, a normal amount of time to have a physical experience. And we have decided as a culture that you get, you know, three to six weeks maximum after you have your baby and then boom, you're done, you're healthy. And, you know, Please do try to get up and out of bed and do everything you need to do as soon as possible. And that is nonsense. And when you look at, you know, many, many, many cultures around the world, they don't do that to mothers. They incorporate a time where she's going to get some rest. She may not leave the the house or her bed. She may be, she may have her, you know, mother or mother-in-law living with her for a month or two so that you know, it's respected. That time is anticipated, respected, and considered normal. And boy, we could learn a lot from other cultures around that. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. We have this, you know, snapback idea that women in America deliver their babies, get back in their skinny jeans, and go about their business. And that is not honoring the magnitude of what labor, delivery, and parenthood is in the very beginning time. Yeah. So what else should we talk about in our last few minutes together? What else do you want people to know about the work you do? Um, well, 
in part, and I think it goes back to what you were just saying too, you know, um, everybody's a little different, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. that there is like, there isn't a right or wrong amount of time for certain things. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, it might be that somebody is a whole lot better in three weeks and has healed and is moving on, but somebody else might need six weeks. And I think that um, one of the things is that we can't, like, every birth is different, and every recovery is a little different, and whether it's a vaginal birth or a C-section, it's the, that's the same, too, and that we've really standardized it and you know every baby is different too so the baby comes out it has a personality and some babies like to eat all the time and some babies eat more you know sporadically but you have to you can't it's not going to be the same for every single person Mm -hmm. and that there are similarities but it's really important to find a community I mean I think um you know motherhood and pregnancy birth raising children um, have always been done in community mm-hmm. and that it's super important to have that and also to have a provider that's going to support you through your experiences right. um, and to listen to you. And I think that, you know, my own work is trying to develop ways that we're really thinking about this and that it, and that we can't make uh, a total change over everything. I don't think that that's possible, but that we need to look at different places and different spaces and think about how to support people as they're doing that. Right. And, you know, people are doing that around the globe, um, in the U.S., in other countries, where they're coming into communities and giving support in different ways around pregnancy, birth, child rearing, or the whole nine yards. And I think we need to think a lot about that and about how cultures of the past really created structures to support, you know, healthy healthy wellness around parenting and children and um you know there's a lot of great research out there around these things and i just think that we need to trust ourselves around this and not be overwhelmed by what our best friend told us or what the next person told us but to share those stories um you know one of the other things that i'm really interested in is is the global story around this and being cognizant that in different cultures our cultural system is not the same, you know, it's not, doesn't work for them, and that we have to be careful about imposing that as well. Right. Um, We're doing that in a lot of ways. We're doing that. I know that in in a lot of um, maternal health settings in developing countries, they're starting to emulate the way that we deliver babies, and it's, it's, uh, and not in a good way. You know, we're doing too many C-sections, too many interventions, and what we're trying to do is put a Band-Aid on a bigger problem. And, um, you know, that's something that the global birth community is also really evaluating and looking for ways to prevent. Exactly. And, I mean, you see wonderful things that moms here are doing to support moms in other places, too. So I think, you know, taking our knowledge of what works is helpful, too, but being careful about imposing what we think is the right way to do things. And and I would say that for every woman that's having a baby. Um, I do get, it's interesting, I teach a course called the Anthropology of Reproduction, where I focus only on pregnancy and birth through time and space. And um, the biggest response I get often is from students who have come, you know, who've had a baby. So, like, I've been teaching this for about 15 years. And they're, and some of them don't, many don't go into midwifery. They go into all different things. 
and they'll be in touch and they're like, oh my gosh, thank you so much for that class. I don't know if I would have known that I could have done this or that or my body would have done this or that if I hadn't taken the class. And I really wish, so sometimes I feel like I'm like an early childbirth educator. Right, right. Um, And I would love, you know, again, it's about just having the information and not all my, again, I want to say this because I don't want to demonize medicine in any way, but I just want to make it clear that, you know, whether you are in a hospital or whether you're at home or whatever the situation is that you're giving birth in, I almost gave birth to my second child in a suburban, um, that, you know, at least you're safe and and people are respecting you and your needs and letting you know what is needed if something more than just you is needed. And I think that that's kind of the most important takeaway from everything I'm doing is that your body can do it, but medicine is there to support it if necessary. Perfect. And you can probably hear on your end of the line that my neighbor's gardeners just arrived, (laughs) which is kind of signaling a good time for me to ask you our final question. And that is, where are you in your life as a mom? Where am I in my life as a mom? I am in a fabulous place. I have, like I said, my boys are 12 and 15, and they are both in new schools this year and both having wonderful times. Lucky. Um, I'm learning how to parent a teenager, which is very interesting. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good word for it. Um, Pardon? That's a good word for it. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I am also um, currently, and I guess for the rest of my life, um, outweighed and shorter than everybody in my house. (laughs) (laughs) You represent the female contingent in the family? Yes. Yeah. And and that's great. But, you know, I I also have really close relationships with both my children, at least at this point, and I'm hoping that they continue further. I, I pinch myself every day my 15 year old will still come up and give me a hug which I consider a huge win as a parent absolutely and (laughs) And, it'll probably uh, continue I think that a lot of parents you know teenage years are they're hard sometimes and I think that they're kind of designed to make it easier for parents to let go um, and let them you know progress as adults but they come back they're bad they come back and if you've got a good relationship with your 15 year old you are so far ahead of the curve. <laughs> You're doing great. Yeah. Well, I consider myself lucky. Yeah. I think <laughs> you're pretty lucky too. Well, Pam, this has been a lot of fun to talk. And I I love that I mean, I have never talked to an anthropologist and archaeologist about reproductive care before. This was really new for me. Thank you. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed this conversation. Well, great. I imagine that as you do further research, we're going to be talking again. You come back again? Excellent. Absolutely. Okay, cool. All right. Hang in there the rest of this week, will you? I hope so. You too. I will. Bye. Okay, bye. Mama said there'll be days like this. There'll be days like this. Mama said. Our guest today was Dr. Pam Stone. You can learn more about her work at www.hampshire.edu forward slash faculty. 
You can learn more about me at jeanfaulkner.com. Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenthood is produced in Portland, Oregon by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures Studios. Email me your questions and comments at jean at jeanfaulkner. Tweet me at jeanfaulkner. Make a donation to keep this conversation going over on my website. Subscribe to the podcast and share the living daylights out of this thing, will ya? Oh, and go buy a copy of my book, Common Sense Pregnancy. It's everywhere books are sold. And we'll talk again next week. Now more than ever, we have got to keep talking. Bye-bye, everybody. Someone will look at me.